Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today on the show, we're going to talk about race and nationhood. Many of you will be aware that these have been in the public square in a very heightened way in the last year. And so we just want to dive into that. We think it's a valuable conversation for today. And so actually, maybe just for to get us started, Aaron, maybe you could list, list for the listeners why this is a valuable conversation. Why should we have this conversation? Well, the issue of race and nationhood is is obviously being talked about all over the place. People are talking about it in their living rooms. Friends are having discussions about it. People are out defending their skin tone, their racial identity in public because many feel persecuted or pushed aside or diminished in some way. Uh, We've seen a lot of examples of racial-related protests and riots and genocides in our world. And so I think we can't bury our head in the sand. We have to have a conversation about it. What we need to be careful to avoid is virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is really where people dive into hot topics that have a moral, seemingly moral, virtuous component to them just because everyone else is doing it. And I just want to call out anyone who would dare to do that. If a person spends you know, all their time calling out people for racism, but they they don't comment on the broader issues of religious persecution, martyrdom, abortion. I, I just always find that a little suspect mm-hmm. when people kind of are very selective in their topics. So my I'm more interested in a comprehensive view of justice, which actually allows us to apply biblical categories of ethics and theology to whatever issue happens to raise its ugly head in our day and age. So definitely not to to virtue signal, but just to have understanding, to understand, you know, the the writer of the Proverbs called us to understand righteous and justice, justice and equity. And, and this is important for us to understand these things. And we understand righteousness, justice, and equity when we get into the word of God and actually study what the Bible has to say about these things. A second, uh, a good reason though, would be because people are confused. The the debates are being had. So as pastors and Christian leaders and theologians, we want to be able to speak into the relevant issues. I also think, Chris, that there is an interesting cultural development that's linked to issues of nationhood and racism. Historically, people understood they had a pretty strong view of nationhood. So there were countries, countries had borders, countries had their own governments, and everyone was sort of uh, marked by a certain national identity. But the word nationalism is almost like a dirty word now. It's like you're a nationalist. Does that mean you're some sort of a, like, for example, a white supremacist or whatever it might be? So nationalism has become a dirty word, even though I'd like to maybe talk at some point today about how it's a biblical word. God actually developed nations in response to the sinfulness of humanity. But now we have this move towards globalism, which is always tied to the to the progressivists agenda. And globalism is sort of this move towards the, you know, one world government, 
uh, whether it's the UN or otherwise sort of controlling everybody's lives. So that's that that conversation factors into this because there's almost the sense in culture that if we can go back to Babel and just unite all the nations, that that's going to be the solution. And we saw in Babel that was actually a disaster and God divided the nations up. So that's a component. I think another thing is that history sort of demands we talk about it. You know, we live in a world where people have been targeted and abused and put to death and um had their rights taken away from them because of their quote unquote ethnic heritage. I also think it's important to talk about racism and nationhood because for, for many people it's, it's very personal. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was talking to a friend who grew up in the Caribbean and since has moved to Canada and they were kind of describing some of the attacks that they'd received because of their ethnic identity, almost along the lines of having PTSD, like post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think a lot of people realistically have experienced some sort of an attack or affront to themselves, not because of what they said or something stupid they did, but just because of a skin tone or the texture of their hair or something like that. And so we have to recognize the personal nature of uh, this conversation. And because truth, biblical truth, is always foundational to reconciliation and understanding and love and all that. So I, I really want to help people to understand what the Bible says about racism because most people are just hearing whatever CNN has to say about it or Fox News has to say about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very much a worldview issue that we're going to be able to talk about later on in this show as well. So what would you point to as some of the examples of racism in perhaps the modern realm? Yeah, so we're in 2021 now. And last year we saw in the US and maybe to a lesser degree in Canada, but it still affected Canada. But we saw essentially North America, the protests and riots over uh, some killings that took place. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of folks really furious. Generally, when those issues happen, when there's a riot or protest, it's because there's been several previous events mm -hmm. that have taken place. So we saw the uh, racial riots and uh, protests surrounding the George Floyd um, uh, death or murder. I guess the courts have to decide whatever they want to call it. In 2020, we had First Nations conflicts in early 2020 in, in Canada, blockades and railroads being blocked and all that kind of thing because of perceived inequity. In 2018, there were disputes that took place in Ethiopia between two ethnic groups. Um, many people remember the Darfur genocide. Uh, this is going back to about 2003 and kind of spilled over into 2004 and so forth. We, we saw or witnessed or at least heard that there were about a half of a million people put to death. Hmm because of ethnic conflicts that's in recent history this isn't like back to world war ii where hitler was doing his thing this is fairly recent 
in the 90s, there was, you know, the Rwandan genocide where the Hutus killed almost 1 million Tutsis in that conflict. Uh, Serbs were murdering Bosnians in the mid 90s. I think like 8,000 Bosnian, Bosnian Muslims were put to death at the Serbs, hands of the Serbs. So, we have uh, clashes between people with different skin colors. We have clashes between people with the same skin color, but perceived to be you know, part of a different ethnic group. And we have individual challenges that people have faced, you know, like back to my friend from the Caribbean, the PTSD that he's experienced. I've made an effort on occasion to talk to people in our own church that come from different ethnic backgrounds than I do and just ask them, you know, what, what sort of um, challenges they have experienced. I, I have a friend who's of African descent who said, yeah, I've been called names because of my skin color. Mm. Um, I mean, you know that I'm married to a girl from a Mennonite background and uh, I have lots and lots of Mennonite family and Mennonite friends. Um, even have an elder in our church from that background. And he, he was telling me that, and this is just, this is actually in the early two thousands. Cause he's a young guy um, that when he would play, you know, basketball on a basketball court in Ontario, in Canada, you know, in a first world country, some guy would just say, this guy's a Mennonite. And he just could like shove him to the ground. Mm-hmm. So people from all backgrounds at, some point either in recent history or ancient history have been persecuted. Mm-hmm. My, my family ancestry is composed of um, a sort of a variety of things, some French, some Irish, English, and who knows whatever else mm-hmm. going back to the time of Adam. And if you, if you look at every, every ethnic group in, in the world at some point has received some level of persecution or, or um, hindrance because of their country of origin or their ethnicity. The Irish were despised when they mm-hmm. first came to North America. They were considered, you know, people that were taking the jobs and they were given a lot of a low, low, low paying job. So this, these kinds of things, even if they didn't happen to us personally, they mm-hmm. can affect the psyche of families for generations mm-hmm. in ways that we don't even know. Like if my dad was impacted by his dad, who was impacted by his dad and his dad and so forth, back to incidents that I'm not even aware of those, those traumas or those, those uh, responses to challenges can continue to affect people right up into the present. And because we love people, you know, we want to do our best to help people to think through those issues and think biblically about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what? People are thinking about them. And I think it's very good that we, we point out this is a real issue. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's a real issue. There's millions of people all over North America right now talking about it. Yeah. Uh, we see Facebook debates. People are going into uh, those Facebook debates trying to find their opinion. And, you know, a lot of people are looking for answers. They right. see the problem. They're looking for answers. They might turn to the news. They might turn to uh, just personal opinion or people around them. So we really want to talk obviously about what the Bible has to say about this. And so maybe we can kind of go there a little bit sure, um, and really just dig in. What does the Bible have to say about this issue of racism? Yeah. I, I think for the listeners, it's really, 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 did I say really important that you allow the scriptures to inform your response to these issues. 
because you're going to hear all these theories and all these ideologies and all these news reports and all of these, you know, mad Twitterites trying to influence you and rile you up and cause you to respond in a certain way and jump on this bandwagon or that bandwagon. And you can be led down the garden path. So it's really important when we think about issues of race to think about scripture. So with, with regard to race, let's just think about the word race. It's actually non-existent in scripture. There, there are no races in the world. We use these, we come up with these artificial categories that are actually not even from the word of God. And they can actually pollute the issue. You know, the Bible reminds us or teaches us in Genesis 3 that Eve was the foremother of all living. All of us come from the exact same two people, from Adam and from Eve. We didn't, you know, it's not like some of us uh, evolved in Africa and some in Australia and some in North America or whatever. We all, we all come from uh, Adam and Eve. And the New Testament picks up on this as well and reminds us that God made man, every nation of mankind, and determined the allotted periods and boundaries were all from one race. So while we don't all look the same, we have different features, we look much more alike and are much, much, much more alike than we actually are different. Now, what the Bible does is it doesn't talk about races but it does talk about different nations and their respective boundaries. So there's obviously different groups, families of people living in different boundaries and parcels of land. The Bible uses the word ethnos or ethnoi to, dis- to delineate between tribes and nations and possible groups of people. Now, in North America, most people, and e- even in Europe and in Africa, uh, most people in the relatively recent past are a result of people from all different ethnoi marrying and having children. So there's no such thing as like a purebred human uh, that, you know, is, is from some ancient race right back to the beginning of time. We all are the result of people from different ethnoi from around the world coming together and marriages over the generations. And lo and behold, here we are. A lot of people nowadays will do these DNA tests and they're like, oh, wow, I, I didn't realize I have this in my background or that in my background. I always thought of myself as, you know, an, an Asian or a, a white person or whatever it might be, a Latino. And now I discovered I have this and that in my background. But race, the, the notion of race, interestingly, is primarily the, the product of evolutionary theory. Hmm. So this is more of like a Darwinian evolutionary th- theory that's leaked into the church and affected culture in the way that we think about humanity, that we're all these like different groups and this group's from this background and this group's from this background and we're all kind of segregated out and and so forth and so on. The Bible speaks of our origins as being from Adam and Eve, created in the Garden of Eden, were made in the image and likeness of God. We have, yeah, we can speak different languages and we can have different cultural preferences, different ways of dressing, um, 
different preferences in terms of food, different kinds of dancing, different kinds of celebrations. Obviously, religion is woven into there and different philosophies as well. But we're, it's, we're, we're sort of having a debate about something that, strictly speaking, doesn't even exist. Humans are not divided up into different races. I was talking to a friend of mine, and, and um, he would be what the world would call black, right? Mm-hmm. You're a black man. That's what that's the world's definition. You're a black man. And he just said to me, I don't even think of myself as black. But then others would say, well, that's colorblindness. That's inappropriate. You are black. But what he's saying is, look, my skin pigment isn't my identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, people are going to, because of sin, people are going to treat you differently if you look different than they do. That's that's the world around us. Or even if you look the same, but you have a different language that you speak, or you know, you look the same, but you have a different dress, people are not the uh, their identity is not found in their color. In fact, if you think about it, it's it's actually kind of silly that we we permit ourselves to define people by their skin pigment. Mm-hmm. It's it's ridiculous, actually, that we 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 spend so much uh, energy on this. Those people of color, we're all we all have a color to us, but who really cares? So we need to ask ourselves, where is our identity found? And ultimately, uh, we are all one race. There's one human race created by God through Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. So do you think that's a, like you mentioned, Darwinian theory has probably influenced that. Like, did they talk about racism in the Bible or did they talk about racism in ancient cultures or, you know, what, what are the categories maybe that were in mind for those ancient peoples? Well, it's interesting if you read the scriptures uh, so I don't know if you've ever asked the question, like, oh, what color was Moses? What color was Abraham? What color was Jesus. Solomon? What color? Doesn't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. Just doesn't really even come up. It's almost like in the scripture, they they were focused on nationhood. There's a lot of talk about nationhood and ethnic, eth- ethnicity, what tribe you came from. Virtually no conversation about skin color. You, you just have to kind of guess. And if you look at the descendants of the of those people today, you can say, okay, well, they such and such was probably this skin color. But ultimately, we don't know because it's just not really uh, talked about. God, you know, said through uh, the prophet Samuel to David when David was being selected and didn't sort of measure up to the the stereotype, the physical stereotype of what a king should be. You know, he's this little short guy and he didn't kind of meet the criteria in the day among his people for height and whatnot. Because by the way, people are not only ridiculed because their skin color, they're also ridiculed, oh, you're too short or your hair is too um, curly or too straight or, you know, you have red hair or you have freckles or you have a big nose, your lips are too big, your lips are too small or your ears are too low or your neck's too long, you know, all all these sorts Mm -hmm. of things. And Samuel just said, God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. So man, we love to judge the outward appearance. And while we want to have a conversation about how to help people respond to this, the sins that people engage in with regard to attacking people's physical appearance, let us not fall into the trap of contributing to the problem by in our mind and in our theology and in our churches, paying attention to things that God doesn't actually pay attention to. 
God doesn't pay attention to these things. The color of biblical figures is not mentioned. Now, we can be well-meaning. I remember as a kid when we were in Sunday school, we would sing the song, you know, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. And in your mind, you're like, oh, there's red children and yellow children and black children and white children. Which one am I? Hmm. Well, I don't think it was the author's intent to fuel division, but in some ways, that is the implication. This idea of racial phenotypes that were there's yellow people and black people and white people. Actually, if you want, if you if we want to be just purely honest about it, we're all just different shades of brown. Mm-hmm. There's no black people. I've never met a person that's black, a person that's white, a person that's yellow or red. It doesn't exist. Strictly speaking, we're all shades of brown. In fact, people who, you know, scientists that study uh, phenotypes, you know, the, 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 the things that um, contribute to differences in physical appearance between humans say that the differences in phenotypes between people accounts for less than 0.012%, less than 0.012%. One, two percent of human differences. Hmm. So when we're judging people or arguing with people or segregating people because they have a different physical appearance, we're actually segregating people on differences that exist between us and them that account for way less than one percent of who we are. Now, you hear people respond to that. Well, that's, I don't, you know, whatever. Ignoring racism is racism. Well, if you mean it, ignoring injustice is unjust, you're right. But actually, I would argue that speaking of races creates racism because races do not exist. So we need to be careful not to fall into the trap of categorizing people in ways the Bible does not. Hmm. Yeah, I think everybody listening is probably saying to themselves that is very, very helpful. It widens the, uh, you know, the the list of factors that we're different by. It's not just our skin color. It might be culture or language or physical yeah. appearance in so many ways. Obviously, we have favoritism or discrimination based on those things. It's a real problem. Uh, we've said, you know, it's it's not helpful to draw attention to some of those differences, but we live in a world where that does happen. So do you think there's hope really to fix this? Like what's the solution? Obviously there's lots of ideas out there about solution. Most of the solutions seem to be actually creating more problems. Uh, What would you point to? I would say the world's, and I'm going to say the world, I'm talking about media and the average secular person, their response tends to be what I would call a very horizontal response. It's not a spiritual response. It's not a biblical response. It's not a God-inspired or God-revealed response. It's a response that just flows from whoever's yelling the loudest, whatever movement happens to be popular in the moment. One of the foundational, and I've mentioned this earlier, but one of the foundational passages for us to consider is Genesis 11, where what we learn there is that when humanity rebels against God and it's not even a point to argue that we live in a world where the majority of people have rebelled against God. Unity, bringing people together in unity apart without surrender to God is actually more destructive than allowing people to be divided. 
Now that might seem a little odd for hmm. some of the listeners to consider, but look at Babel. We have a godless culture and they have this genius idea. Let's get together. Let's build this giant tower up to God. And, and there's some humor there where God has to, they build this giant tower and God still has to come down, mm-hmm. <laughs> illustrating his grandeur. He has to come down and he disperses them over the, 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 fa- the face of the earth. And he confuses them through linguistic uh, division. So now we have the rise of all these different languages. And while some of modern languages are connected to other modern languages, there's some modern languages that are so radically distinct from there's no there's nothing there's no structural similarity. There's no um, commonality between certain languages and other languages. And that's because of what happened in Babel. God just divvied us up, different grammar, different structures, different vocabulary, and so forth. And why did he do that? Essentially, because our unity led to mutiny against God. Hmm. And God humbled us by dividing us up into different ethnoi. So nationhood is actually a necessary part of a broken and fallen world. Hmm. Think about that. It's not the heavenly vision. In heaven, there's just going to be, you know, we're just all going to be there together under God, one nation under God. But nationhood is part of a broken world. Globalism is not the solution. Globalism, apart from surrender to God, just takes us back to Babel and increases the arrogance of humanity. Look what we can do together. So in a broken world, when people continue to rebel against God, it sounds kind of strange to say, but we almost want some division. Because when people are united, they think of themselves as all-powerful and they usurp the authority of God. Whereas... Dividing us up into different nations and ethnoi reminds us of our need to su- submit to God. At different points in time, we have one nation that might be submitting to God and another that's not submitting to God, another that's kind of on a decline, another that's on an incline, and so forth and so on. So glo- I would just say that global attempts to fix human-to-human conflict within the created order without bringing God into the mixed mix is a major error. Hmm. It's a it's it's a problem. Uh, people like to think critically about race. They like to nurture inclusivity, resilience, call upon people to recognize their privilege, you know, validate other people's feelings, call out people for racial jokes, uh, fix wealth disparities, call people to shop at minority businesses. None of these will work. <laughs> they won't work. And people think, well, this is this this is what's going to bring bring us progress. This is actually the lie of progress. This progressivist mindset is a lie. the The Bible actually calls us to a pessimistic view of humanity's ability to get along, not an optimistic view, not a progressive view. Apart from God. People do not get along, will not get along, will get worse, will manifest unfettered depravity. So in a, in a strange way, it's hard to think about some respects because it sounds counterintuitive. God divides us in order to reduce human sinfulness. This doesn't mean that we contribute to that, but what we do is we bring the gospel to bear on division and human rebellion. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ does is it invites us 
to surrender to our original creator in order that we might go back to God's original plan and intention for us, which is creatures living in subjection to the creator. Mm -hmm. That's the heavenly vision. That's what Christians should be fighting for. Primarily, surrender to God. When you surrender to God, not, not these lame attempts at just getting everybody together and you know paying everybody off for past injustices and correcting our language and you know getting rid of this vocabulary and having these movements and so forth and so on. These these sometimes these are putting band-aids on the problem, other times they're actually contributing to the problem hmm. because it contributes to human arrogance and a progressivist agenda that says. Well, if if people can just get along and if racism can go away, the world's going to be a better place. What about sin? We'll just find some other way to sin. So we're calling people to a gospel vision of um, justice and equity. Mm -hmm. In other shows, I think we've talked a little bit about the moral law of God and how the moral law of God is so important um, in instructing us and kind of restraining evil. Is there any part of that that plays? And maybe we can get into that a little bit later, but um, do you think there's any part of that that plays a factor in this discussion? Well, God, God's law, first of all, God is good. The All, all sin on some level is a downplaying, a questioning, or an outright denial of the goodness of God. If you, if you track any sin that we mm -hmm. commit, well, I'm going to steal something. You're questioning God's ability to provide. That's why you want to steal. I, I'm lusting. You're questioning God's plan for human sexuality. You don't believe that God is good. You think he's a cosmic killjoy. You think he's trying to rip you off. I'm going to gossip about someone. You think that by tearing other people down, your life's going to be better. You don't uh, embrace the fact that God is good. And we see this in Eden where... The goodness of God was questioned by the serpent and Eve was duped by it and Adam was subsequently duped by it. That God's not good. God's holding out. God knows your eyes will be open. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. All sin is in some ways, I'll say it again, a downplay, a downplaying, a denial, a questioning or, or whatnot of the goodness of God. So the opposite to that is that God is benevolent. So he doesn't just randomly make up rules and commands just sort of throw them out there and say, this is what I want you to do. Everything God says is for his ultimate glory, but it's also for our good. So God's moral law, which reminds us of the innate value of humanity, the value of human life, who are, it points us to our true identity. Yeah, all of God's law plays a role in protecting us from ourselves, from our rebellion and pointing us back to to God and his ideals for our lives. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier too, about the, like the heavenly kind of ethic or what things might look like in heaven. Obviously we're not there and we kind of have to live in the temporary here and now, but what is that ideal that we're looking to? Well, Peter in Acts 10 said that um, God shows no partiality, but what he's really interested in is finding people in every nation that fear him and do what is right and acceptable to him. So that's, that's what God's looking for in the here and now. And he will find people among all the nations, people of different heights, different statures, different skin tones, 
different hair texture. He will find a people for himself, a heavenly race from all the different ethnoi of the world to bring honor and glory to him. And he's doing that. Hmm. I was saying to a friend yesterday, a uh, couple houses back, we lived on a street in, uh, in Windsor and, uh, what I would look to my right, my left, the people past those houses across the street. And it just kind of was fascinating to think about how every person within kind of visible distance of our house was pretty much from a different country. Mm -hmm. We were the only ones born in Canada. They're from mm -hmm. all over the world. I said to my kids, guys, the world lives on my street. It really does. The world literally lives on my street. So this is... This is kind of cool that we have people from all different backgrounds and the we can enjoy, you know, our different um, cultural backgrounds, different recipes and different celebrations and you know, different ways of thinking about the, you know, not so important issues of life. Mm -hmm. But the heavenly vision is that people from all tribes, tongues and nations will come faith in Christ, not all people, but people from all of those. Mm -hmm. And then we have the, the vision of revelation. Uh, the way I like to vision envision revelation is we have John, the apostle John in his elder years. And he's sort of like looking almost sort of like a porthole in, into heaven. And he's seeing God's ultimate ethic or God's ultimate ideal. And he sees the elders bowing down and, and the majesty of God and his throne and all, and, and all these wonderful visions. Well, one of the things he he envisions in the in the seventh chapter of a revelation is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, clothed in white, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and that uh, promissory vision, because it will happen is based upon this gospel notion that our ultimate identity is forged when when we be we become citizens of the heavenly kingdom that mm -hmm. God rules and I can then stand arm to arm with people who have <laughs> shorter arms longer arms darker arms lighter arms you know yeah. hairier arms less hairy arms yeah. than me and worship God this is the heavenly vision. So we have a vision in the here and now, God calling people from the nations to worship him. That's what matters to him. And then we have the eternal vision. So both in the in the now and in the not yet, there is this radical inclusivity, but it's not an inclusivity based upon culturally defined notions. It's an inclusivity that's based upon the values of the kingdom and ultimately surrender to the king of the kingdom who is God himself manifesting himself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You've said this before, that the church is actually the one place in society that you will find the most diversity out of any other place. Cause the one thing that unites us is Christ. Um, and I found that very fascinating. Yeah. And actually let me, let me just comment on that for a minute. I, I'm totally fine with youth groups meeting to meet the needs of youth and young adults groups meeting and, it's a great place to find your future husband or wife. And I'm totally fine with women's groups meeting. But I think churches make mistake when they just divide everybody up based upon their demographic background. The church is an, a, a giant family. And, you know, while it's okay for 
women to hang out with women and young, a young a group of young uh, men to meet in a certain demographic to, to talk about the unique challenges. We need to do a better job of being inclusive even within the churches we already have mm-hmm. because that's the heavenly vision. Like my friends range in age from late teens, 20s, right up into their 70s. And I'm kind of in between all of that. I I like that. I, I don't want to just be around people like me from my background, my age, my skin color, my my culture. I love sitting in a room with people from different backgrounds. There's a there's a joy in that. And I one of the things that burdens me is um I almost think that we live at a point in culture where the devil is using race this this discussion about racism not to bring unity but to further infuriate and divide us. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a guy recently, he says, I never felt like a racist till recently, and I'm trying to repent of it. I'm thinking, wow, that's fascinating. It's like the more we talk about it, the more we accentuate mm-hmm. our differences, the more we infuriate each other, the more we we are divided. We're not united. And in the church, we really need to work hard at being, and I'm using this word in a biblical sense, inclusive, mm-hmm. in, the, in the heavenly sense, inclusive, that everybody is a valuable contributing member of the kingdom. And really, we, sh- we should be able to say without apology and without being shamed, I, I actually don't care about your skin color. It, it's, it's irrelevant to me. Mm-hmm. But it's strange how we live in a culture where even saying that is considered racism. And it's just so perplexing and, and confusing. Well, it's like now you're not recognizing the injustice. Look, I'm not saying that at all. It's just that when I look at you, your value as an image bearer of God to me has nothing to do with mm-hmm. your ethnicity. Mm-hmm. You're my brother or you're my sister in Christ. And that's what matters the most. This is the, this is what unites us rather than divides us. Mm-hmm. And one thing to that, you've mentioned this in the past as well. Uh, we do maybe a dangerous thing when we get churches that are consistently, you know, just pulling towards one ethnic group or even a cultural group, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm probably going to, I'm going to stick my neck out here and just say this. I'm totally opposed to ethnically specific churches. I have no problem with linguistically specific churches. There's there's different linguistic categories in scripture. But let's say you you're in Ontario, Southern Ontario, Canada and in and you speak English. Why would we have churches for different ethnic groups that are all preaching and teaching in English? This just furthers the divide. Mm-hmm. Every church should be inclusive and welcoming of all groups. Now, if someone if a group comes to another country and they don't speak English, they speak French or Spanish. I'm I'm fine with a, a linguistically oriented church that helps to minister to people. But I, I think the heavenly vision of radical unity and inclusivity should should be reflected as best as possible in the way we do churches today. Mm-hmm. My wife's family is uh, from Quebec and there's a church there I remember visiting that does an English service and a French service. Uh, which obviously for language reasons, they often have separate. Sometimes they do it together, but they bring the church together in between the services to really emphasize oh, okay. the unity of, you know, it's just not separating out that way. But nice. can we talk a little bit about some of the application of this? What's our response? What are some practical take-home things that we can take from uh, this discussion? Yeah, so we, we've had the conversation and hopefully it's been helpful. But I've been thinking about 
what what do we do or not do? What do we say or not say? And um, I want to kind of outline a few a few points that that um, I've sort of arrived at. the The first would be, and these are no particular order, but the first would be when when you see racial inequality. Uh, and again, I don't like that word, but I'm just pointing out what people call it or prejudice between ethnic groups. I I always think it's better to defend the other group rather than defending your group. So it concerns me when, uh, let's say, a, a white guy spends all his time calling people out for his offense at being accused of having white privilege. Why not let someone from a different ethnic background defend you? And what this does is it's this – this uh, protects us from the the possible sin, possible sin of selfish intent. Because mm-hmm. we may think, well, I'm I'm defending my group, my group, but you might actually just be fluffing up your own feathers. Mm-hmm. So it's it's always better, if possible, to defend someone from quote unquote a different ethnic group than to go around defending your own all the time. So I I, I try to be conscious of that. A second point would be just to show empathy. I, you know, there's nothing wrong with showing empathy. Ask people questions, um, mourn as they share some of their challenges, trying to understand their circumstances. By the way, you don't have to agree with how a person interprets every experience they've had in order to listen. Mm-hmm. So uh, experience is is subjective. It may be right. It may be wrong. It may be a little of each, right? Mm-hmm. People have an experience. It's not like gospel truth. They say, well, this, this offended me and this is why. Well, maybe they misinterpreted it or maybe it was legitimate. Like not every experience is like, well, you have the experience. It must be true. I mean, let's, let's be um, objective enough to acknowledge that not every experience is necessarily true. But listening to a person's experiences doesn't require you affirm or 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 um, uh, agree with it, but without understanding, it's hard to have a conversation that points them towards truth or points out maybe a lie that he or she has believed. Mm-hmm. I don't think you know. No matter what happens, don't falter your resolve in terms of being a person of justice. Justice is not a movement; it's it's a virtue and value of the kingdom. It's not a, well, right now there's a lot of injustice taking place, so I'm going to be the social justice warrior. That's a, that's a lifetime commitment. But don't let the world define what justice is because, again, they get it wrong. They're like, oh, we're going we're gonna to stand for this. But they're letting babies die. They're letting churches stay closed, et cetera. I, I, I'm sorry. I just don't trust godless people to tell me what's right and wrong mm-hmm. and what I should be standing for or not standing for. So this this leads to my next point. This is maybe one of the most important things that I'll say. And I think if you read between the lines, you'll understand more fully what I mean by this. I would just say, because the world as a whole is godless, be very cautious about hitching your wagon to any movements that aren't gospel-centered. Hmm. They might, they might um, seem to have a moral, virtuous base basis to them, but I, I just don't trust the world's morality system. I don't trust the motives. Um, to use some political jargon, I don't want to be anyone else's useful idiot. Hmm. I don't want to be duped. I don't want to be, I don't know, one of the wool pulled over my eyes. 
So better that the church does its own thing and stands for causes of justice than, you know, jumps on the bandwagon of some new movement that claims to be in favor of, you know, getting rid of racism. And you find it behind the scenes. It's actually a, they're just closet Marxists or globalists or, you know, they think back to Babel is the solution to, mm-hmm. to the world's problem. So I, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to get it. I'm not going to be someone's useful idiot and be manipulated for nefarious purposes. We also need to acknowledge that injustice does require an emotional response. So I hope that most of what we've said today is like more truth-based. You know, we're emotional beings. We're not denying Mm -hmm. that, but it's more truth-based. But um, there's an, there is an emotional component to this. So we do want to demonstrate some, um, uh, you know, emotional empathy with folks that are sharing their stories with us and, and just make sure that we're not sort of just parsing this out from purely objective historical theological background, but we're really thinking about it biblically, but also in a very human way. A couple other things that come to mind would be that we're not going to legislate our way out of racism. We're not going to pay our way out of racism. We're not going to honor treaties in order to make our way out of racism. Look, people, <laughs> people are people are people. And they will always find some reason to pick on and divide others. You know, you can, you can bring two people together who are twins, twins from the same parents. They have the same genetic makeup. And they don't like each other. Why? It's like you speak the same language, you look the same, but people people are naturally geared towards self-protection, mm-hmm. self-promotion, and they will find some way to divide. And I, I think just you know politically, just championing our, our charter rights. I think they're especially relevant. God is supreme. We believe in the rule of law, various freedoms, fairness equality these things are these are things that our forebears championed and um we uh we want to champion them as well mm-hmm. also can, can you tell me about um okay when we talk about culture and ethnicity this is something you've talked about in the past and i think would be helpful for listeners to understand the difference because there are aspects of culture that are ungodly and should be denounced and not celebrated but not so with ethnicity and like, what's the difference there? Yeah. Language matters because language facilitates truth or error and the words we use and the tenses we use in our words and how we, how we define words does matter more than we probably think. People say that's just semantics. Well, semantics is the bread and butter to communication. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The meaning of a word matters. So ethnicity would be defined scripturally primarily as nationhood so when you are in a particular nation and that nation has borders and boundaries and speaks a common language and presumably has a close genetic relationship and may not that's that's a you know one of the one of the ethnos of the world it's one of the ethnic groups and god god acknowledges that those categories exist but when people spend time together within a particular border what they do is they develop a culture and culture is not morally neutral i mean there's aspects of culture that are morally neutral 
like you know do we um you know do we do we cut our lawn with uh push mowers or sickles you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like who cares you know it's in your culture maybe it's maybe you everyone uses a sickle whatever but so much of culture is morally charged it, it it culture is a collection of everything from you know more morally neutral things like the color of your clothing to how you comb your hair and what the smell of your perfume is to things that are not morally neutral at all like what god you worship what your worldview is how you view marriage um, your response to things like um, adultery or um, fornication or how you respond to uh, matters of slavery and, and these kinds of things. These are all morally charged concepts and every culture worships something. But what we often mix up is we say, well, we're multicultural. And what people think you mean by that is, oh, we accept people from all over the world and we don't discriminate based upon skin color, hair texture, whatever. Well, we should discriminate when it comes to cultural issues because culture is just man-made constructs. It's got nothing to do with your DNA. It's just Mm -hmm. the way you do things. And some parts of culture are fine and we can accept different aspects of different cultures. But sometimes to accept a particular aspect of a culture, its godlessness, its licentiousness is sinful and it's immoral. So we don't have to accept every aspect of every culture, no matter what happens. I also want to just say that what we really need to get back to is reminding people that their ultimate identity is not in their, it's not even in their ethnicity. It's in their walk with Christ. Mm-hmm. And until you surrender yourself to Christ, you really don't understand who you are. You're a confused person. Our identity is in Christ. You're not, you are not your shade of brown. You are not your hair texture. That's not who you are. You're made in the image and likeness of God, and you should act like it. You should ground your identity in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So scripturally, there's two kinds of people. There's those that are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. There's those that are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and are strangers to the covenants of promise and those that are in Christ. And for those that are in Christ, Christ is our peace, and He's the one who gives us our identity and our, you know, ultimate um, allegiance. So, if we are hostile toward one another, it's because we're hostile towards God, hmm. and we've refused to allow God to to shape our identities. And the greatest hope for real unity is when we all submit and surrender ourselves to God's eternal son, the divine logos, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in him that hostility towards one another, but most importantly, hostility toward him is ultimately corrected. So this is the healing word of God, that God brings healing, not by racial reparations, Although we certainly do not want to create structures and systems that discriminate mm-hmm. between people based upon their ethnicity, we acknowledge mm-hmm. that. But our our ultimate heavenly vision, if we could just share the gospel broadly and people could understand that their true identity is in Christ and then treat each other as citizens of the heavenly kingdom and surrender ourselves to God, uh, the problem would be solved and there would be 
peace as there will be one day in the eternal kingdom. Mm -hmm. It makes so much sense and so grateful for the biblical insight that you've given us today, Aaron, uh, on these important issues. Any news that's been going on in the, uh, any highlights that you wanted to bring to people's attention before we end our show today? Yeah, a couple things. Last week, we announced that James Coates was going to be released and then it kind of got dragged on. So I think most people know by now that he was released uh, yesterday, which is super encouraging. We're, we're delighted that Pastor Coates is out. Um, we also got some good news today that over in Scotland, the judiciary there, and by the way, they have a very similar, they're part of the UK, so part of the Commonwealth, very similar structure to our government. I hope our government pays attention to this. They just kind of gave the church a big break. In fact, the the judge, I think his name was Lord Baird, even said in his ruling that um, you know, challenging the constitutionality of closing churches that online church isn't true Christian worship. Wow. <laughs> so he's willing to say what many Christian pastors aren't willing to say, that online worship isn't true Christian worship. So it appears that they're going to get green lighted to, um, you know, open and, and, and have all the liberties that are afforded to them. So, yeah, those are a couple of good things. Hey, in our church, great things are happening. I mean, people are flocking here. We're, we're meeting newcomers every week. We have uh, 28 people scheduled to be baptized on Palm Sunday, which is super awesome. 28 people making professions of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just such a beautiful thing. And and we're delighted to be able to, to walk with them as their disciples. Those are some great things that are happening kind of internationally, nationally, and then very locally. Awesome. Well, you can find some links in our description there uh, to those resources that we mentioned, that article from out of the, uh, the UK there. And just wanted to say thank you, Aaron. This is an important discussion. Thank you for sticking your neck out there and having this discussion. And we hope that all of you listening who have tuned in are blessed by it. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. If you can, you can rate it as well, share it on social media, and most importantly, tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron Rock.